There is a simile about the first four meditative absorptions, not uh, given by the Buddha, but in the commentary of the Visuddhimagga, given by Buddha, Buddha Gosa, and it's quite a good one to see how one actually can feel about doing the meditative absorptions. It says like this, a person is wandering through the desert and getting thirstier and thirstier and having no water with them and then finally sees in the distance a pool of water and his excitement and delight arises. Now wandering through the desert and being very thirsty is the inner yearning for joy, happiness and peace within and trying to find it here and there. And then seeing that pool in the distance and excitement and delight arising is the first meditative absorption. One sees, in sees, within, that something is there. It's only still in the distance, the complete satisfaction, but at least the mind knows. So then, having seen it, one goes towards it and going towards it one stands at the edge of the pool and one is extremely joyful that one has now reached the pool of water which will take away the thirst it's the second meditative absorption the joy of knowing that one has come to the edge of satisfaction within. And then the person climbs into the pool and drinks. And having drunk enough, that person is contented and feels quite different from the person that was wandering around in the desert without any water. Maybe you've never been very thirsty and haven't had any water available or very hungry and having had no food available. But it's very miserable physically and mentally. But here, of course, the simile means our mental emotional state. We are not contented. We are looking. And so here, having drunk enough, the difference between that state and the thirsty state is enormous. It's not the final goal of the Buddha's teaching. But it's a necessary implementation. It gives us the ability to carry on. So now the joy and the contentment have come. This person now being contented also feels peaceful when that person was searching for water. It's a quite an unpleasant situation to have to go and search for water. The thirst is there and one is being pushed in all directions, restless, and trying to find that which one needs. Water is an absolute need for living beings. And inner joy and peace are compared to that.
to the water which the body needs, inner joy and peace are compared to that which our inner being needs. So here now that person has drunk enough, climbs out of the pool and goes to a shady tree and lies down under that shady tree, resting from the great exertion that had taken place, first without the water, then trying to find the water, and now being totally at ease. That's the fourth meditative absorption. He's not falling asleep. He's just resting. And that rest in the mind is the stillness that I mentioned. Well, this is a very um, good simile for what we go through in life. Sometimes we don't even know. We don't know that we are really searching for something else. And the only manifestation of that search is our inner restlessness trying to go from here to there, finding different teachings, different countries, different friends, different um, knowledge, different jobs, whatever it is we're looking for. That is a manifestation of that thirst. We're thirsty. We haven't got what we actually need. So we try to find it in those outer manifestations. No need to do that. If we were to use our time and energy to find it within us, we would get there much faster. In fact, it's the only way to get there. Now, the fourth meditative absorption, the fourth jhana, is quite often where the discourse stops. doesn't go on to the next four. And it is said that the fourth is, so to say, the springboard for the next four. The first four were called the fine material absorptions. And I've already explained why that is so, because we have similar states. In ordinary life, they are far less fulfilling, they don't have the uh, quality that these have, and they depend, depend on outer conditions. But we have some similarity. So there is a way to relate. Now come in this particular discourse that we have here, and in a long meditation course such as this, it's worthwhile to discuss the next four meditative absorptions at least in order to know what our minds can do. We're all capable of them. In fact, I would like to say they're nothing special. They're certainly not enlightenment. But and the foundation and the implementation of our mind capacity. And since enlightenment is something special and needs a lot of mind capacity, we've got to put a foundation there into our mind. But doing the meditative absorptions is only a matter of patience and perseverance and not looking for anything. The achievement syndrome will have to be dropped. There's nothing to achieve. There's everything to let go of. I'd like to repeat that those states of the first four meditative absorptions are within us. In fact, all of them, all eight are within us. But let's just talk about the first four, are within us and they are only covered over by thought processes. That's all.
whatever the thought might be, if the thought is, I have to concentrate, if the thought is, I must do this, whether the thought is, I don't want to do it, it doesn't matter. They're covered over by thinking, emoting, reacting, opinions, viewpoints, all the things that we are totally familiar with, everything that we have always done. If we haven't been completely satisfied with what we have always done, there's nothing else to be done except to let go of it. Let it go, just let it drop off. It doesn't matter. It has no bearing on anything that we're doing here. Whether I like it or I don't like it, whether I want to achieve it or not achieve it, it makes no difference. When one drops the whole bundle, the mind automatically goes into those states of consciousness. That's what this sutta is all about. That's what the Buddha is explaining to the questioner, Puttapada, who wants to know what consciousness is and how it comes and how it goes. And so he's explaining the meditative absorption. All of us have consciousness. So we all have also that kind of consciousness. I'm emphasizing it to a, um, a degree because there's so much confusion about the meditative absorptions for those people who have been in contact with others that either write or talk about such things. If one hasn't had any contact, it's much easier. One just sits down and doesn't because one doesn't have to let go of any preconceived notions the preconceived notions that need to be dropped. So whatever it is that goes on in the mind, if we drop it, let go of it, the rest happens automatically. This is where the calm and collected mind goes. It has no other place to go until it has reached Nibbana, and then, of course, it can go into Nibbana bliss. But until then, these are the only states it can go to when it stops all the rest. So we have nothing to get. We don't even have to get concentration. All we have to do is drop everything else. It's like shedding. Think of yourself like a dog that has gone into a pool, comes out, and then tries to shed all the water that has gone into his fur. Just shake it off. Just shake all the rest of the stuff off that's going on. And then the mind can do it. It has nothing else to do. Unless it falls asleep, of course, it can do that. Now, the next step are called the formless meditative absorptions or the non-material meditative absorptions. doesn't matter whichever. The first one in Pali are the Rupa, Janas, and the second one, the A-Rupa. Rupa is um, body, but it's also materiality. And Ah is non, not. Atta is self, unatta, non-self. Quite simple. The non-material meditative absorptions are called that, first of all, because we have no connection in our ordinary mental capacity to these states. In fact, to a non-meditator, they might sound like a fairy tale. A meditator might have a bit of an inkling, even not having done them. 
And they are also called non-material or formless because they concern the mental states and no longer the body states. Now, if you remember, the first one, the first jhana is definitely sensations in the body. And the second one, joy, is an emotion. But again, the Buddha gives a simile that one should be totally drenched in it, in the body. The same with the third one. It's also an emotion, and the body should be suffused with it, and the same for the fourth one. The fourth one is compared to having a white garment, which is completely covering oneself. But here, with the next four, none of these similes are given, and there are no emotions touched at all, and certainly no body sensations. They're strictly mental states, consciousness, consciousness states. And they come about because the mind has become malleable, pliable, flexible. And as the mind becomes that, through going through the other four, often enough, long enough, so that the mind actually loses its hardness and uh, resistance, then it can do that. Now, what the Buddha said about the next one is this. By passing entirely beyond bodily sensations, by the disappearance of all sense of resistance, and by non-attraction to the perception of diversity, seeing that space is infinite, one reaches and remains in the sphere of infinite space. In this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. Passing entirely beyond bodily sensations is at that time no uh, hardship. It doesn't have to be done specifically because one doesn't have bodily sensations in the fourth jhana. It is the stillness of the mind and the emotions and the feelings which one is aware of. So the bodily sensations are not something that we need to specifically drop. But the disappearance of all sense of resistance, that needs to be done specifically. And that refers to several things. In the first and most important instance, it refers to the body limitation and boundary that we know. Now, when we sit here now, we have a limitation and boundary which is quite distinct. Where the skin ends, that's where the body ends, and unfortunately, that's also where I end. At least that's what we believe. So, this is a very definite boundary and resistance. One can actually use the word boundary also to the word instead of the word resistance. Now, in having been in the fine material absorptions, that boundary is already enlarged to some extent, but maybe enlarged only to the extent of double or triple. It isn't quite as limited anymore as it is at this present moment, where we know exactly where we are. At least we think we know where we are, right? here, between this and that, and that's me. So, at that time, there are definite things that one can do in order to reach the infinity of space, which is a very interesting um, experience. And um, the first thing one can do is to go to the boundary of one's body, 
wherever that appears to be at the time. It may not be as limited as this, but it's certainly limited. And start stretching. Stretching the boundary. Further and further. Now, when we were doing the contemplation on the elements, I was trying to give you an inkling of that, how we can stretch the boundaries of this body to include further, further away existing things such as nature or other people. Of course, I didn't go as far as space. I would have taken us a bit far. But at least I was trying to give an indication what one can do. And this is something like what one can do. And then comes the next sentence, non-attraction to the perception of diversity. I dare say, if one hasn't done it, it would be difficult to know what's meant. The non-perception of the... or the non-attraction to the perception of diversity means that the diversity of beings. So what we need to get past is that attraction to singleness. One person, one house, one tree, one forest, one horizon, one sky, some clouds. They are all separated. Each one has a boundary. Those things I've just named. Each one has a boundary and is separate. Well, that is an attraction to diversity. And this is actually the natural human state. Diversity is called papancha, manifoldness. And nature abounds in it. Hundreds of species of one thing. Only an expert knows how many has to learn that. And we have the same. We all look a little different. And we are attracted to that diversity. We look at the forest and we see the trees and the leaves and we think that's beautiful. And we look at the sky and we see the single stars and the moon and we like it and we think it's beautiful. And the same with other people, either beautiful or not so. But we have to get beyond that in order to get into the infinity of space. So what is necessary to do? One can do either one of the two or both, depending on how difficult one finds it to get in there. If one can either start at the boundaries of the body and expand, expand further and further. And then when one comes to a block, doesn't go any further then one can actually go to the perception of forests, meadows, mountains, valleys, rivers, oceans. Go further and further to this whole globe we live on, further to the sky that surrounds it, to the horizon, and then let go of the horizon. And as one lets go of the horizon, there's the infinity of space. So that is a possibility. That is the non-attraction to the diversity, to the boundaries that keep everything, in our opinion, separate. Actually, it's very helpful if one thinks about it for a while and contemplates whether there is truth in this kind of statement that there is 
total unity. That the boundaries which we see optically are nothing but an optical illusion. Because it is known to everyone that there aren't any solid building blocks anywhere in the universe. Everybody's heard about it and then forgotten it again. There's nothing but the particles, energy, that come together and fall apart and come together and fall apart. So if that is really the way it is, then those boundaries are mind-made through optical illusion. And that's what they are. And so that kind of understanding can help us to let go of our attraction to diversity, separateness, and to let go of the boundaries around the body. These are two ways of entering in to the infinity of space, which, according to the Buddha's words, one can do quite on purpose. We don't have to wait till we have the great good luck that it may happen one day. Being able to realize this kind of underlying truth helps us to expand the mind. Now, most people in the world never think that way. They have no connection to thoughts that have any content of total unity. The scientists who have made these statements have found out through their scientific experiments and their scientific investigation. And yet, most of them, not all, but most of them, do not take that on as their inner thought process. There are some who do, and those who do obviously come to meditation. One of those is Fritz of Capra, who came to Sri Lanka and uh, inquired from Venerable Nanaponika how to meditate. There are others, no doubt. He's the only one that I know about. But most of them just think it's science. But if it's truth, it's our own mind. Because that is the underlying factor of the universe, the mind. Not the personal mind, of course. So, if we give this some thought this understanding, we may find that we can actually reach to that kind of extension of our mind. And the less the mind is limited and the more it has the ability to expand, the easier it is for the mind to see truth because truth as we know it has no bearing on absolute truth truth as we know it is due to our own limitations and so if we expand the mind we go beyond those limitations we all have that potential and Using up our potential is actually our responsibility in this human life. Not leaving it at the limits where we are now, but expanding as far as we can go. Now, again... If we have been able to
to reach any of the jhanas. It is always extremely beneficial to do an inside inquiry afterwards. If we haven't reached any of the jhanas, after any meditation which has been somewhat concentrated, it's also a good idea to look at some insight as advised by the Buddha. And if you remember, yesterday we had that... Um, we had the um, little paragraph where when the mind is concentrated, purified and cleansed, unblemished, free from impurities, malleable, workable, established, and having gained imperturbability, one directs and inclines the mind towards knowing and seeing. And there was the talk about the body made up of the four elements and having cause and effect and liable to be injured, broken and destroyed and the consciousness which is dependent upon it. Now here's another indication of, in this case, all the wrong things that we can think about the self. And it's quite interesting because it sounds as if it is um, very archaic and wouldn't have any uh, connection to what we're thinking, and actually it does. It's exactly what we're thinking. And I'll read it out to you. Certain ascetics of Brahman declare and hold a view. Since this self is material, composed of the four great elements, the product of mother and father. At the breaking up of the body, it is annihilated and perishes and does not exist after death. This is the way in which this self is annihilated. Well, the first thing that this tells us is that the people who are propounding this view, and Potapada propounds that view, actually, is that they believe there is a self and that it is identical with this body. This body is me. And that view is so widespread in our day and age that one cannot, cannot even guess how many people believe that without any doubt. And that's where we get all these um, ideas from that if we get the body all right, we'll be all right. First of all, we never get the body all right, and secondly, we won't be all right. We might feel a little better, but we're certainly not going to be all right. And these ideas are very widespread and can be found in any esoteric magazine. And it's exactly what these people thought. They are just describing it in different words, which we wouldn't exactly use. We wouldn't say it's uh, made up of the four elements and it's uh, a product of mother and father. We wouldn't talk like that. But they talked like that, and it's exactly what we're thinking. We're thinking, this is me. Well, it isn't you, so who else can it be? It's got to be me. And then you look in the mirror. Well, that's me. And then one has looked in the mirror so many times, and it's always been me. So how can it be different? Which is a very hardened view and very limited view and doesn't bring any satisfaction because of the fact that the body can never be satisfying. It has needs and demands which the needs we have to satisfy and the demands are often absurd so we have difficulties with the body. And that's me. Just think for a moment that you could be sitting here with just the mind, without any body. Wouldn't that be great? 
what a wonderful assistance to meditation. I'd never have to think about, can I sit this way or can I sit that way? And can I actually stand sitting a little longer? We don't have to sneeze or cough. We don't have to get a headache or a backache. Nothing of the sort. We could just use the mind. Of course, we'd still have to concentrate the mind. But you can see how the body is a nuisance, to say the least. And to identify oneself as a nuisance is absurd. Why should we think we are a nuisance? And yet this body is that and nothing else. So these people were exact thinking exactly that. Now comes the second kind of view. It sounds a little more grandiose. And another says, there is such a self as you say, I don't deny it, this body one. But that self is not wholly annihilated, for there is another self, divine, material, belonging to the sense sphere, fed on real food. You don't know it or see it, but I do. It is this self that at the breaking up of the body perishes. So that's the identification with the soul. Everlasting. The everlasting soul, which when the body breaks up, then, of course, that particular person that we were is gone. But the good part of us, that what is called soul, should be still around. So they don't believe, this one doesn't believe that the body is me, but he believes that there is a divine and another self, which is divine and which belongs to the sense sphere. And that belief is also very widespread. And in fact, it's insidious. We may not actually believe that there is such a thing intellectually, but it's an insidious uh, kind of thought process which has been drummed into one for so long that there is an underlying, at least doubt, whether there isn't such a thing as me in the soul or the soul in me or whichever way one like to turn it, and that will be quite different from the one that we know now because we usually think that the soul is something good. And we don't like to think of the fact that we've got both sides in us. We've got the wholesome and the unwholesome. We'd like to think that the soul is the good part of us and that it's going to um, have the self in it. And even though we may intellectually deny such a belief system, and intellectually one probably does, there's still this inner hope, well, if, if I'm not the body, at least I'll be that. And that one will be quite happy later, which is also part of that belief system. Then another says, there is such a self as you say, I don't deny it. So there's a body and then there's the, the other one, the divine one. The divine one which we can't know or see. But that self is not wholly annihilated. For there's another self, divine, material, mind-made, complete with all its parts, not, not defective in any sense organ. Now that one, people often talk about a higher self. So here we've got a subtle mind-made idea. It's no longer the soul, it's the higher self. And that is, of course, also in Hinduism, the, the union with Atman, which is the highest self, and there's another uh, viewpoint which um, describes that even better. But the higher self is usually spelled with a big S. And the ordinary self is a small S. So that we can distinguish which self we're talking about. Of course, the Buddha says it's all wrong. Every bit of it is wrong. That's why he is um, repeating all these viewpoints. The um, mind-made one 
also refers to the higher jhanas, of which I've described the very first one, the infinity of space. Because a, um, a realization of that state of consciousness brings about the idea that if one dissolves into that space or if there is that possibility of space, that that is the way the mind has made up the self. These are all ideas that people have because they can't let go. They can't let go of the idea that there's somebody there. There's got to be somebody there. It just has to be. Who's doing all the things I'm doing? Who's thinking all the thoughts I'm thinking? Who's feeling all the emotions I'm feeling? Who's reacting to everything I'm reacting to? Who's wanting all the things I want? There's got to be somebody there. And so, if one doesn't identify with the body any longer, and that's not that difficult not to identify with the body, one obviously has to identify with something else. So the first step would be the soul, and the second step would then be the higher self, or even through the um, non-material absorptions, a kind of self which can be within infinite space, or infinite consciousness, as we go on with that. So these are all possibilities. Now there's another one. There is such a self as you say, but there's another self which, by passing entirely beyond bodily sensations, by the disappearance of all sense of resistance and by non-attraction to the perception of diversity, seeing that space is infinite, has realized the sphere of infinite space. And that is the self in unity. Now, through that ability to get into infinite space, one also has the ability to feel unity. And that was also what I was addressing with the contemplation on the elements. The unity where one loses one's separateness, one's alienation, one's feeling apart, where there is unity consciousness. Now, that word is being bandied about a bit, and it has a validity. Unity consciousness is when we do not have that alienated feeling that we are the observer of everything. We're standing outside, and everything is happening over there. And while we're this observer, we're, of course, judgmental and critical and disliking, and also craving. Because we would like some of the stuff that we're observing, and we would like to get rid of some of the stuff we're observing. But we are not it. We are not embedded in it. That's the usual stance. So, of course, we believe to be either the body or the uh, soul or actually the higher self. But when we have the experience of unity, which is the experience in the uh, infinity of space, or even through the contemplation of the elements, then we might actually think we have come to the understanding that there isn't any body because we are uniting. And this is the idea of union with God. In Hinduism, union with Atman. If one joins in with something, there's got to be something there that's joining. So the Buddha denies it completely. While we still have this idea of self, certainly unity consciousness is much better than separation consciousness. And it brings about the ability to have love and compassion without trying very hard. In fact, without trying at all. Because if there's nobody else there, if the whole thing is one, 
who can irk us or irritate us. It's just all one. And if I can have some loving kindness for myself, obviously, if I have unity consciousness, I can have loving kindness for everybody else. So it's very helpful in that respect. And it's very helpful in the respect of not being afraid. Being alienated also means feeling threatened. Threatened by others. Threatened by the world around us. Threatened by death. Threatened by whatever irks us. Pain, suffering, whatever. So having unity consciousness and feeling at one with all that exists, or call it God, whatever one likes, or Atman, just words, that certainly eliminates a great deal of that fear. But we need something that has to be there that can join to the other. And four kinds of wrong view. And it would be very helpful and worthwhile to contemplate which one of those views do I adhere to? Which one do I believe in? Body? Soul? Higher self? Or union in creation? Being one with everything. Which one do I believe? And then look again. Where can I find that that I believe in? Well, obviously, the body if that is the self, if that's me, we have already discussed that. But where can I find the rest of them that I can actually be? Because I've got to be one of these in order to believe it. So that the uh, contemplation would go towards trying to find that which I actually think I am. Am I the higher self? Well, which one is that? And am I in unity? We may not even have experienced unity consciousness, but even just thinking about it, who and what is joining in? So we have the uh, possibility of checking out, first of all, whether the body is me. Then we have the possibility of checking out whether we can find a soul within and whether that's me. And then we have the possibility whether we can, we then of checking out whether the mind that says the higher self is me, whether that's me. The mind says that, so is that me? And then the unity consciousness, those four. We can check them out and see, is there really something behind all that? Can I actually believe any of that? Is there any foundation for seeing it in that way? It's very deeply ingrained. And when the mind is still contracted, and a contracted mind is the opposite of a malleable, expansive mind. When the mind is still contracted, it has a hard time seeing the reality of all this and seeing that they're just belief systems, that they're just made up by the mind ideas in order to support our ego assertion. Now, when we no longer need to or want to support the ego assertion, it becomes much easier to see a different reality. The more we can grasp that there is a different reality, the easier it is to meditate. Because who stands in the way? It can only be me. It's not you. 
Nobody else is disturbing our meditation. It can only be me that's standing in the way. So, the more I can see that that's nothing but an ingrained idea, the less it will stand in the way. My new book, which is in German, so most of you won't be able to read it, is called Without Me, Life is Quite Easy. And Jnana Bodhi thought up the title. So, it may give an inkling of where this teaching is actually going. It's not just a psychological assistance on our pathway through life. It is that too. It's a radical rethinking and then a radical re-experiencing. And because of that, it has weathered two and a half thousand years, has stayed with us, because if it's just psychology, that has its ups and downs and its fads and new ideas. This one is so radical, nothing new can be added to it. So this is a way that we can use our contemplative ability. And we should have that in addition to meditation. We're not just meditating in order to have the first jhana and become blissful. I hope you all do. But that's not what we're doing it for. We're trying to see the whole gamut of experience which the Buddha is explaining to us. We're not taking one thing out and saying, well, this is the one I like. I'll have that one. It doesn't work. Guaranteed not to work. There's got to be a completeness of it. A completeness which started out in this description here with moral conduct and with guarding the senses and with having contentment it, um, and with mindfulness and then with the method of watching the breath and then getting the right concentration, samadhi, and then having the mind investigate. And that's also why I have done contemplations with you so that you can tell the difference between one and the other. As we try to do the meditation, obviously the mind tries to become calm and collected, but as we do the contemplation, the mind tries to see things in a different light. Most people who don't meditate, not all, but most people, do not contemplate their own decay, disease and death. Some do, but most don't. But when we are meditators, we are able to do that sort of thing. And so, in the same, by the same token, we can contemplate on our ideas about this self. What are they? Where can I find it? What's it look like? Which part of it do I really think I am? Now, I'll just read out what the Buddha said about the next um, meditative absorption. By passing entirely beyond the sphere of infinite space, seeing that consciousness is infinite, one reaches and remains in the sphere of infinite consciousness. In this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. Now, there is this to say about it, about these 
explanations of the Buddha for the formless absorptions. They are very short, succinct, and not detailed. And because of that, one could imagine, and that's just an idea, that's because of that they haven't been practiced, at least not to any great extent. One could also imagine that part of the explanation has got lost, or one could think, and I have thought that, that the people he was talking to could do those anyway, and that they were quite skillful at meditation already. It's a possibility. I don't know which one is correct. At least these are extremely short, these explanations, and have no detail to them. So, having experienced the infinity of space, all one really has to do is turn one's attention from that spaciousness, and that's actually the first time I would think that word really applies. That's spacious, the infinity of space. As one has experienced that, one turns one's attention away from that spaciousness and turns it to the consciousness which has experienced that spaciousness. It's only infinite consciousness that can experience infinite space. Our infinite consciousness is that which really is paying attention to infinite space. So we are moving from the one which is the result of the infinite consciousness to that which is experiencing the infinite consciousness, the infinite space, and that's infinite consciousness. Now, to experience infinite consciousness, and likewise to experience infinite space, brings about the insight afterwards, when we ask, what have I learned from that? That there is no personal entity. There is unity. And when we realize that, that unity consciousness does arise in neither infinite space nor in infinite consciousness can we find a separate person that's doing it or experiencing it. If we find the separate person, then, of course, we are no longer in the infinity of it. In both cases, the observer has resurfaced. In the fourth meditative absorption, the observer has been minimized, and therefore it is a great boon to mental energy and clarity. But in the fifth and sixth, the observer is there. And so afterwards, or observer is um, more apparent. And so after having come out of either one of them or both, the observer knows very well there wasn't anybody except that infinity and can actually realize that. The infinity of consciousness gives rise to the understanding that there is universal consciousness because the two are synonymous. Infinity of consciousness and universal consciousness are synonymous. There's no difference between the two. And having that understanding as an experience gives rise to one's own determination that one should, one should never soil universal consciousness with any thought, speech, or action, which is unwholesome. And that we are all 
part and parcel of that universal consciousness. And the more our own consciousness is purified, the easier it is for us to have access to the pure aspects of universal consciousness. Because within universal consciousness, everything can be found, obviously. It doesn't disappear. Whatever we think, say, or do doesn't disappear. It lands there. So that is another um, realization which comes about and the realization of this unity consciousness that comes about through that. We can compare fifth and sixth jhana on the formless level with first and second on the fine form level. When we have delightful sensation, joy arises with it. And all we have to do is change our attention from the delightful sensation to the joy which is there already. In fifth and sixth, the same thing happens on a more subtle level. And the um, meditative absorptions become successively more subtle. With the experience of infinite space, the experience of infinite consciousness arises simultaneously. It has to. There's no way it can't because we cannot have a limited consciousness and an infinity of space. So all we have to do is drop our attention from the infinity of space, which is spaciousness in itself, and turn it towards the consciousness, which is aware of that. And that infinity of consciousness is sometimes very much misunderstood, in fact, particularly misunderstood in the um, Hindu tradition where it was often thought to be the epitome of one's spiritual attainment. But another thing which happens at that time, and which is very, um, very true, is that in, uh, in Sanskrit it is as said at that time, Tat Vam Asi, I am that. And that is a unity consciousness. And Meister Eckhart said the same thing. And he was almost burned on the stake. He escaped because he had very good connections. He didn't say, I'm that. He said, God and me are the same. Unity consciousness. And that's what happens in the sixth jhana. And because he said that, without any further description of infinity of consciousness, without any description whatsoever, one can, I think, um, rightfully assume that he did the jhanas. Because otherwise, you can't say that. And say it, not just in order to be someone, but in order not to be anyone, which was his greatest endeavor. So, Tatvana Asi also means that. It means I'm that, everything, and that I am. And God and me are the same. It's a great experience, but it's certainly part and parcel of the meditative process. And as we have that meditative process, as it becomes ours to practice, the level of understanding and the level of clarity in the mind just rises because the mind is no longer so limited and contracted that it has to concern itself with the self spelt with a small s. It has now reached something more than even the self with the big s or similar to it anyway. And 
having reached that and coming out of it again, the mind also knows that's not the end of Dukkha. Dukkha is there again. There's more to be done. And that's why we have to investigate which self do I believe in and do I have any foundation for that belief. And when we find we have no foundation for it, there might be quite a shift. So, even having had both experiences of infinite space and infinite consciousness, they do not prevent dukkha from arising when one comes out of meditation. Because whether we let go of a self with a small s or let go of a self with a big s, it's all necessary to do because as long as we've got one or the other, that self can have dukkha. And maybe the one with the biggest has even bigger dukkha. Possible. I don't know. 